Okay, our scripture reading today is from Isaiah chapter 48 or 41 verses 8 through 16. I'll give you a few moments to locate that if you're following along. I will be reading from the NIV version. So Isaiah 41 8 through 16. But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend, I took you from the ends of the earth, from its farthest corners I called you. I said, You are my servant. I have chosen you and have not rejected you. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. All who rage against you will surely be ashamed and disgraced. Those who oppose you will be as nothing and perish. Though you search for your enemies, you will not find them. Those who wage war against you will be as nothing at all. For I am the Lord your God, who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, Do not fear, I will help you. Do not be afraid, you worm. Jacob, little Israel, do not fear, for I myself will help you, declares the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. See, I will make you into a threshing sledge, new and sharp, with many teeth. You will thresh the mountains and crush them and reduce the hills to chaff. You will winnow them, the wind will pick them up, and a gale will blow them away. But you will rejoice in the Lord and glory in the Holy One of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Needless to say, we are taking a break from our sermon series through Revelation. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer, and then we will talk about his word. Father God, you are a father to us, your children. You love us and keep us. You are near to us and preserve us. Pray that you would be near to us now as we process a lot of really heavy things that are happening in our world. Pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So man, for a lot of people, it has been a scary time right now. Scary because of the news stories about COVID-19 itself, this disease that is spreading around the world. Scary because of the uncertainty we feel about everything and what's going on. Scary because of these big responses and presidential speeches and closing borders and all of that. Scary economically, as some of us have to confront very challenging things. And it seems appropriate, given that reality to discuss how we as Christians are thinking about and responding to all of this. And so this morning, what we're going to do in our sermon is two things. And the second thing we're going to do at the end of the sermon is talk practically, both as individuals and as our church, about what we're going to do. So we are headed there. But first, before we do that, I want us to just have a conversation about fear and how we should and shouldn't think about fear as Christians. Fear. One of the things that 
is striking about fear in general, it is, it is a characteristic of the age that we live in. I don't know, I'm not talking just about this present crisis to be f- clear, but just there's a surprising amount of research that points out that in the modern era, people are much more anxious and afraid, it seems, than they were in the past, even though in some ways they have less things to be anxious about, and much of our media and entertainment does feed into those fears. And in scripture, fear is viewed as something that we as Christians must resist, all through the Bible. Just consider a few famous passages, like from 2 Timothy, for God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Or Philippians 4, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Or Romans 8, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as a son. We as Christians are told to resist fear and not be anxious and afraid. Now, up front, we need to clarify what that does and does not mean. It does not mean that the simple feeling of fear in the moment is necessarily wrong. Like, look, like if a guy smashed through those back doors with a chainsaw right now and came running in here, like fear in that situation is a right response, right? Because it makes you respond appropriately. And even ongoing fear is not necessarily sinful as long as we are processing and handling it appropriately. Some of us wrestle with anxiety or other afflictions, and all of us go through certain anxious seasons of our lives and in our world right now in many ways. You know, there is a sort of anxiety that's appropriate, but such ongoing fear needs to be controlled and responded to in certain ways. Because there are ways that it can become sinful for us to live in that kind of fear. And so, largely that rests in what we do with those feelings of fear, how we're responding. And the way the Bible talks about that is in terms of our hope. What is the thing we are placing our hope in when we feel afraid? And so what we're going to do is take this passage from Isaiah 41. We're going to talk briefly about two wrong hopes we can have in the face of fear, and then what the right hope is. First, two wrong hopes, and then the right hope. The first thing to recognize is that our hope is not in ourselves. Our hope is not in ourselves. Isaiah, in this part of the book, is writing to Israel as they are in exile. They've been let off in captivity, and Jerusalem has been leveled, and they are, um, their military has been shattered, and they are afraid for the future and afraid about what's going to happen to them, and their fates are unknown. What might we say to people in such a situation? I think instinctively in our world, we'd be tempted to say to the man, just believe in yourself. Just trust in yourself. You've still got yourself. You can make it through. Here's how God addresses them. He says, and I love this. Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you. Fear not, you worm. Now, to be clear, God is not being a jerk there. Just a few verses earlier, he proclaimed his love for Israel and commitment to them. But what he is doing is Israel is facing the seemingly all-powerful empire that has destroyed their homes and enslaved them. And they're saying, we are helpless. We can't stand against this thing. We are worms. And God's response is, yeah. Of course, he says that in order to lead them into how not to be afraid. And we're going to get there in a minute. But we need to recognize that God does not reassure Israel that they have got this, that they can handle it. We should not put our hope in ourselves. 
Now, first, let's say what that does not mean, and then we'll say what that does mean. That does not mean that there isn't a place for us to do appropriate things in dangerous situations, right? When we say that our hope is not in ourselves, that doesn't mean that, like, if my house is on fire, I just sit on the couch and wait to be rescued. Um, um, God is not opposed to our actions, and often he works through our actions. So in this situation, right, like, God is sovereign over things like disease, but as we'll talk about a little later, like, there's still stuff we should do. But... We cannot do enough to not be afraid. You can wear masks in public and meticulously sanitize your hands and cancel all your big engagements. And still, just by living in the world, you might get sick or something else terrible might happen to you. And you're going to have to feel the consequences of this moment that we're in. If you are trusting in yourself to remove your fears, that means that it is only your, your, your hope is only going to be as strong as you are. If you're trusting in yourself, your hope is only going to be as strong as you are. And moments like this one make clear to us that that's not actually that strong. I mean, I think that's part of why something like coronavirus is so chilling to us, because diseases really show our fragile condition, right? Like, some guy breaks into my house. I mean, it's probably delusional, but I'm like, yeah, I could, like, beat him up, right? And, you know, and stop him. But when we're confronting this thing that we can't see and can't get our hands around and is moving around us in that invisible way, that should be a lesson to us about our own frailty. So our hope is not in ourselves, and our hope is also not in our circumstances. It also cannot rest on the idea that everything's going to be fine and nothing bad is ever going to happen. That's certainly true of Isaiah. Remember, he's writing to these people in exile. And in verse 11, he says, Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. Now, again, that's speaking to their hope, but he's assuming that they're facing opposition and enemies in this setting that are trying to hurt them. I always think about Paul's famous words from Romans 8, right? He says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And we love that because of the first part, the who will separate us from Christ's love. But Paul is taking that whole list of things for granted, right? He's saying, look, man, I mean, tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and danger and the violence of the sword are all very live options for what you may experience in your life. Too often people try to overcome fear by convincing us that there is nothing to be worried about. And certainly there are times that that's the appropriate response. When my child is crying in bed because they're afraid that zombies are going to smash through the window and kill them, right? It is appropriate for me to say that's not going to happen. But hard things do happen in life, and it does no good for us to pretend like they don't. And that's true for us as Christians, right? We can buy into this Christian kind of idea that like, well, God loves us and he's sovereign and therefore everything's going to be smooth sailing. And that's just not true either. Jesus is our example and the person we're following who was betrayed and murdered, right? I mean, we should recognize that. When we think about this disease, on the one hand, there are people who are being irrationally alarmist, right? Go try to buy groceries right now. (laughs) You'll feel some of that. But at the same time, There is also another deeply problematic response, which is unrealistically minimizing the possibility that anything bad could happen. I've also heard people saying, look, you know, this is nothing. It's just the flu. It'll be gone in two weeks. You know, everyone has nothing to worry about. And the problem is that it's trying to make a claim about our circumstances in order to make us feel better. And we just can't know the truth, right? Like, I mean, not being an epidemiologist or whatever, like, in my mind, the spectrum of possible options are, like, 
you know, it's over in a few weeks and not a big deal to, like, it's global, you know, tragedy and everything falls apart, right? And that whole range of options is possible. And if our, what we're relying on to overcome fear is to just insist that only these things are possible, we're actually still going to be afraid. We need a hope that can handle that whole spectrum. So what is that hope? Well, the big picture answer of what I'm going to say is probably obvious if you um, have been in church before, which is that our hope is in God. I know you might think that being a pastor, I'm supposed to say that. But hold on. We're going to explain that because that means more than we think. But first, I'll just show you in the text. Just one example, right? Isaiah is trying to turn Israel's gaze from themselves and from their circumstances to himself. So verse 13, he says, For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. God is saying, look at me, and in me find the solution to your fear. But in this passage, Isaiah actually fleshes that out. He says really three different things about God, all of which that should help us when we're afraid. The first is that God has chosen us in love. He's chosen us in love. If you look at verse 8, But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you who I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. God comes to his people in their distress, and what he emphasizes is the fact that he has chosen and called them. Here's a theological idea that has huge practical consequences. God's love, when we talk about it, is not really an emotion so much as God's love is a choice. God's love is not so much an emotion as God's love is a choice. When we talk about God's love, I think we tend to think about it in terms of how God feels about us in the present. And it's true that God feels, you know, a loving way towards us in the present. But in Scripture, when it talks about God's love, it's primarily viewed as a choice that he makes. From eternity past, God made a plan to save you as his people. And even in your sin, God chose to love you. And while we were still sinners, he came and was born and died for us. And Jesus is at work seeking and drawing us to himself, even when we are helpless and lost in sin. God chose to save us. God chose to suffer on the cross. God chose to call us into the life of Christ. All of that stuff has happened in the past. And the reason that matters is that if God, from eternity past, has had that purpose, then nothing that happens in the present can alter it. Let me show you the Apostle Paul makes exactly this point. Again, in Romans 8. He says, um, he says this. First, he says very famously, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. To be clear, that doesn't mean that evil things are good. But Paul is saying that God is at work even in the evil things in this world um, for our good, to make us like Jesus, which is what he means by our good, as we'll see in a minute. But then... We ask, how do we know that, Paul? Like, that sounds ni- nice, but how can I know I can be- believe that? The next verse in Romans 8, he says this. He says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So Paul's saying, look, God foreknew you before creation, before time began. God personally, intimately knew you. And because of that, it's says God predestined us. The word predestined means to plan or determined beforehand what will happen. So God predestined 
us to be saved by Jesus and conform to his image. And then God called us. He came in history and met with us and called him to him, us to himself. And then he justified us. He made us right with Jesus. And then, I love this, it says he glorified us. And when we talk about being glorified, we're really talking about something in the future, when we are resurrected and, you know, and, and immortal and with Jesus in glory. But he's saying that in the past tense, too, that that's, in a sense, already been accomplished because of the work of Jesus. What Paul's saying is that from eternity past, all the way into the eternal future, God's plan and choice has been to save and love and rescue you. And so that cannot be changed by what's happening right now. Nothing in the present can alter that because it's already been written from start to finish. One practical clarification of that before we move on. When we say God has chosen us in love, again, I'm going to say this multiple times this morning, all right? That does not mean that bad stuff won't happen to us, right? Like we said, plenty of hard things do come our way. The point is that they cannot change the underlying reality of God's love for us, and they cannot change the fact that he is at work for us, caring for and shepherding us, even through those hard situations. So that's the first piece of hope in God. Isaiah also tells us God will strengthen us with his power. God will strengthen us with his power. So verse 10, he says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That same idea appears a few verses later in verse 14. We read the first part, but let's read the whole thing. He says, Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. You're a worm, but you have me on your side. And he goes on to picture that vividly in verse 15. He says, Behold, I make you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them. You shall make the hills like chaff. And a threshing sledge is not something you would use in modern farming, but it's this, like, sheet of wood with these holes that you would drag across grain to separate the grain from the chaff. And they would have these piles of grain, and they would use it. And God is saying that I am turning you into this thing that can do that to mountains, right? That the hills will melt and cave away before you. That is God speaking his power to Israel in the midst of her fears. And that is the God we trust in our fears. And that means specifically two things when we think about God's power and strength and work in us. One, it means we can trust God to give us the strength we need for today. We can trust him to sustain us in the present and give us what is necessary for doing his will. Now, one of the traps we can fall into is we focus too much on the future, and God is not giving me the strength today for tomorrow, right? Or for, you know, ten years from now. He's giving me enough for today. Um, but, um, but when we ask, what am I called to do right now? And can I move forward right now? And we turn to the Lord looking for the strength to do that. He will provide it. And then the second thing that tells us is that the future is under control. God holds each of our hands in his life, or each of our lives in his hands. Our futures are a part of his plan. He has numbered our days, right? We, we hear that in the Bible. He knows the day of our death as surely as each day before it, and nothing in the world, including diseases, can alter that. Again, that does not mean that hard things won't happen. I mean, that day of our deaths might come sooner than we would prefer it does. But even if it does, we are still within the good control and plan of God. No evil can befall us except what our Father allows. And then that starts to lead us into our last hope. God has chosen us in love. He strengthens us in power. And God has given us himself. He's given us himself. 
the most important distinction we can make as Christians in this discussion is between our earthly hopes and our ultimate hope. The difference between our earthly hopes and our ultimate hope. Israel has all these earthly hopes, and God is speaking to some of them here in Isaiah 41. Um, they, they want to be restored to their land. They want their enemies to not destroy them. They want to be strong in the Lord. And Isaiah speaks to some of that. But, um, but then he gives them their ultimate hope, which is none of those things. He says in verse 16, And you shall rejoice in the Lord. In the Holy One of Israel you shall glory. Their hope, ultimately, is that they will rejoice in the Lord. That is the thing that's supposed to stay, sustain them in exile. Things like COVID-19 often reveal where our hope ultimately lies. For some people, their ultimate hope is in their physical well-being. And this disease reveals that. Even for Christians, right? We don't actually care how much we have of Jesus as long as he takes care of us physically and keeps us healthy and safe. There There are some of us that can fall into that trap. For others, it lies in our economic well-being. And this disease reveals that too, right? If the stock market, the global economy is the thing that you're hoping in, right? If, you know, if having a nice comfortable retirement is the thing you're hoping in, I don't know what the future holds, but right now, I don't feel super encouraged about that. And, and Christians can slip into that hope too, right? We can say in our hearts that we would, in a real sense, take less of Jesus as long as we could be financially secure. And for others of us, it lies in something else. But here's the thing. Those are all earthly hopes, right? My physical well-being, economic well-being, whatever. And by, by calling them earthly, I'm not saying they're wrong. It's good to desire that thing, right? And you can ask Jesus to provide for that thing. And if you have that thing, you should give thanks for it. But if those things become our ultimate hope, two things happen. We fall into idolatry and we live in fear. First, we fall into idolatry. It's a good thing. Idolatry is taking good things and making them ultimate. That's, that's the simplest way to think about it. It's taking something in creation, which God made good, and saying, this is instead the ultimate thing I'm living my life for. And because of that, we fall into fear. Those idols are not strong enough to sustain us. They are too fragile. My health is fragile. My prosperity is fragile. Everything in this world is fragile. All of it can fail. And even though we live in denial of it consciously a lot of the time, somewhere down in our guts, we know that that is true. And so we invest all this time anxious about propping up that idol, right? <laughs> trying to keep it secure. Trying to take care of it. And that is the source of so much of our fears. But if our hope is in the Lord, we are delivered from all of that. God is present with us right now. He's with us in this world. I might lose my money, I might lose my help, health, but I still have him. No matter how sick we might become, his spirit is in our hearts. No matter how hard our life might become, he has called us his beloved children. No matter what happens in the world, his kingdom is on the move. The earth and sea might give way, but if our hope is in God, it will be secure. And God promises us ultimate salvation. He will be with us forever in the world to come. And suffering cannot change the promise that God will dwell with us one day and wipe away our tears. And death cannot change the promise that our bodies will be raised with Christ. And the tumult of this age cannot change the promise that we will, when he returns, dwell with him forever. What we must do is learn to place our hope in those things rather than in things in this age. Our ultimate hope. Because the more we do that, 
the more we rejoice in the, and glory in God, the more joy and glory we actually find in our lives, even when things are broken right now. All right. So that's the big idea. That's the calling. That said, for the last part of our time together, I want to spend some time discussing practical considerations. And so first I want to give us four applications for our lives as individuals, as people in the world, and then we're going to talk through what we're doing as a church. Okay? So first, four applications for our lives. Number one, be wise in your behavior. Be wise in the way you live in the world. Which on some level is just to say, go wash your hands, right? And follow medical advice, and if you're sick, see a doctor and self-quarantine if necessary. And don't go to that concert and don't be like, hey, like, cruises are really cheap right now. And, you know, I mean, practice social distancing, right? Um, We need to, none of what we said about not living in fear does not mean we shouldn't do all of those things. In particular, we should recognize that those things are a part of our call to love our neighbors, right? One of the basic ways to love someone is not infect them with a potentially deadly disease. Now, I understand that there are tensions there, right? And people have practical questions we have to work through about like, well, can I like go visit my neighbor and all of that? And you're going to have to wrestle with that on yourself because as a pastor, I'm not qualified to give you all those answers. But we should be seeking to be wise, all right? <laughs> that is the starting place. Second, we should be fearless in love. Be fearless in love, which is to say that while we should be as wise as we can, we should not let wisdom be an excuse for us to not love and care for people. This week I was reading, um, because it seemed appropriate, an account Um, of the Black Death, the plague, as it swept through Europe. The Black Death killed 60% of the population in Europe. And um, I was reading about what happened in Geneva, Switzerland, where John Calvin was ministering. This was just after the Reformation. The plague hit Geneva in the 1540s, and people were dying all over the place. And they said, look, these people need pastors to go visit them. And so they told the people, if you get the plague, you're supposed to alert us, and we will send a pastor to come visit you. And initially... They assigned a minister to do that, and he was named Pierre Blanchet, and he went from home to home and prayed with and encouraged the dying, and he got the plague, and he died. And so they said, well, what are we going to do? And they discussed it, and another young man named Matthew Deganestead volunteered and said, I'll take over. And he went from home to home and visited and prayed with the dying, and he got the plague, and he died. And at this point, they had a discussion, and they said, look, if we have someone do this, it's a potential death sentence, right? And um, what is beautiful to me is that they did not say, therefore, we should stop visiting people. Instead, they concluded that what they needed to do was create a rotation so that all of them would have to go visit the sick and potentially face death. While citizens were fleeing to the countryside, they actually made it illegal for their fellow pastors to leave the city because they needed to stay and care for people. And now look, I know that is specifically about pastors. And we are blessed in the modern era with a deeper understanding of disease and certain technologies that can help us be safer. And even then, they tried to be wise and prudent about how they did it, right? I am not recommending recklessness. But when I think about that story, I mean, really, it speaks two things to me. One is that I personally resonate with that as a pastor of saying, like, that is the attitude that I pray I have in Jesus. And while I'll take appropriate precautions, right, I'll just, if you get COVID-19, right, like, I still want to be your pastor and care for you. But I feel like something like that attitude should speak to all of us as Christians as we think about our calling to love and care for people. Now again, 
it's, that's not reversing the first point, right? Be wise, wash your hands, don't take unnecessary risks. But if your neighbor gets the coronavirus and some person needs to buy them groceries, you, as a believer in Christ, ought to be the person that volunteers, even though there might be a risk there. If you are a doctor or healthcare provider and you are caring for people, Jesus, that is the work of Jesus, and he delights in that and wants you to seek to be faithful in it, even though there is risk there. If someone needs to take temperatures or serve the community in some other ways, we as Christians should be the ones who step up and shoulder that burden and, um, and seek to do that, even though it's a risk. We should be wise in how we do it. Again, we should, you know, but we should love, even though it might be very costly. Just a note, one of the things we're going to be doing as a church um, in the coming, hopefully, week is trying to compile, we're going to circulate online a list of people who are interested in helping in the community in different ways and then try to open up space for people in the community to share needs that they might have. And I would encourage you, within the bounds of wisdom, to, you know, share if there's ways that you can help. Third thing we should do is be joyful in life. We should not let this virus dominate our world in a way that keeps us from living in ordinary, faithful, joyful ways. We mentioned at the beginning this difference between times when it's fine to feel fear and times when fear becomes sinful. Another way to think about it is that fear is fine when it has an outlet in immediate concrete actions and it becomes a problem when it doesn't. And let me try to, I'm going to use a humorous example because I feel like this is all a heavy topic. So instead of talking about coronavirus, consider bears, right? We should, in certain circumstances, be afraid of bears. For example, if we are hiking in the woods and a bear walks out and confronts us, we should feel fear, and that is good because that helps us stay alive. Even outside of that, like, you should have a sort of fear of bears that means that, like, when you go hiking, you take stuff along to protect you, and you have a plan, and you don't leave your food laying around a campsite, right? All of that is a good and legitimate sort of fear of bears. But the problem comes if your fear of bears goes beyond that. Like, you don't let your kids play out in the backyard because bears might come and maul them. Um, You lie awake at night worrying about bears. You spend all your free time reading articles online about bear attacks and how to avoid bear attacks and know about every bear attack around the globe. We all agree that is silly, right, when we're talking about bears. But the same thing can happen to us in more serious areas, including the present one. There is a healthy fear of COVID-19 that should change how we behave in certain ways in the world and in our lives. But w- so we should no- lo- learn and try to understand and think about it enough to arrive at that place, right? To have an understanding of, like, here's how we need to be living and responding. But beyond that, once we've taken those steps, there is no purpose for us to continue dwelling in fear. The right attitude is to do the things we can and then stop worrying about it and live our lives. We must not let fear of disease or fear of anything else stop us from living. Enjoy your dinner. Read a book. Play with the kids or grandkids. Take a walk. Pray and sing and laugh. And one specific encouragement in that is be thoughtful about how much you engage with the media. Again, I am not telling you not because it is important and good for you to be informed, right? Um, So be engaged enough to be thoughtful about what you should be doing, to be loving your neighbor well. But... It is easy to go far beyond what is necessary to be informed, right? Reading story after story, speculating about the unknown and fretting about the future is something that I have found myself being tempted to do in this season, and we need to resist that. And then one final practical thing for all of us, stay engaged with God. 
Don't let fear crowd out discipleship and life with Jesus. Scripture tells us pretty bluntly that the more time we spend in fear of things of this world, the less we will fear the Lord. And that's a theological truth and a practical reality. We only have so much bandwidth as creatures. We're going to talk about some practical considerations as a church in a minute that relates to that. But we do need to stay engaged with each other as fellow believers in the community of faith. We need friends and people to encourage and help us. And likewise, we need to make the place that we go first when we feel fear the rhythms of Christian devotion. And especially prayer. Again, I've noticed my own heart, right? I've been spending all this time reading about these things and listening to things about these things and very little time praying about it. And that is something that I'm seeking to change in my life and that I'd encourage all of us to do. All right. So those are the personal, practical applications. And then lastly, I know we have questions about the church, so let me just talk through those. We, as the elders of Kish, have been talking about this and are continuing to talk about this. And so understand this is what we're doing for now. One, we're, we're going to ask you a couple of things. One, if you are sick, if you might have the coronavirus, or if you have been exposed to somebody who might have the coronavirus, please, right, like, stay home. <laughs> you know, I mean, don't, don't engage with the gathered worship of the church or don't go visit people. Likewise, if you are elderly or in an at-risk demographic, Look, look, I know some of y'all enough to know that I can't tell you what to do. And, but, like, you should strongly consider staying home. And you should feel no guilt or compulsion that would push you away from that, right? I mean, you should strongly consider whether that would be wise. Um, and I would encourage all of us to be mindful. Like, in our society, as people are talking about, you know, social distancing, trying to not unnecessarily go to super, you know, public settings and stuff. Like, that's wise. Try to engage in that. Two. We're going to change a few things about um, how we gather together. You've already seen some of them this morning. No handshaking. Um, We're going to do communion differently starting next week. We're going to try to do offering differently. The doors are propped open. There's hand sanitizer all around. Wash your hands. There's a whole list of um, of those things, some of which you've seen, some of which you might not even be seeing, but um, that we're going to try to do, and I'm asking you to do everything you can to engage with that. Three, we are avoiding... All large group gatherings that are not Sunday morning worship. We are canceling the prayer and praise night that's next week. Um, And as long as the schools are closed down, we're ending children's and youth activities. So that includes Sunday school and adult Sunday school will also be closed. That includes nursery care. That includes worship kid style. That includes youth group. If you have teenagers, Jordan's going to be reaching out to your families and, and trying to connect with you so that we can still be connected and ministering to those kids during this time. Um... If you're in a small group, um, you're technically well below the size of, you know, what anyone is talking about. And so I'm going to leave it up to you, but I'm going to encourage you guys, if you're in a small group, to discuss it with your group and seriously consider not meeting. And obviously, again, if you're feeling a little off or something, you know, you should stay home from small group, right? All right. That said, that is what we're going to do for now. We will, at this time, we're planning to continue to meet for gathered worship. Now, there may well come a point where that changes. It could be next week, right? Like, I don't know what the future holds, but for now, we are not planning to cancel our time of gathered worship. Especially in a season like this one, being reoriented by God toward his truth and the hope that we have in him is really a key part of us staying engaged and walking through this thing in a healthy and wise way. 
We will work on some options if we decide not to meet. There will be lots of communication with that down the road. We'll probably try to stream things digitally for you to attend online. And I know some of you, especially who are older, are like, I don't know how to do that. And that's part of why, <laughs> you know, I don't love that option. It's not a replacement for this thing. We are working on that, and we will continue to communicate with you about that. And if you have any questions about that, come talk to me and the elders. And two last notes about that specific decision. One, that is a tricky decision, right? Like, that is one that we've wrestled with. We might change our minds on down the road. And churches are choosing both ways, and it's important for us to respect and not speak ill of that choice. And in particular, I don't want y'all, out of some sense of loyalty to Kish or to me, to, like, try to give people a hard time who've made the other decision, to (laughs) to be clear, right? This is a... That is a hard choice, and we may well um, decide otherwise down the road. Um, So be mindful of that. And then secondly, I would just encourage all of us to be extremely mindful of of each other and the needs that we have in each other and be encouraging each other as a body. Ultimately, this is what it comes down to. Be wise in how we engage and don't be ruled by fear. Um, And we as a church are seeking not to underreact and take steps that are wise, and we are also seeking to be wise in the things that we are continuing to do. And so I'm asking you guys to just be in communication with us and be prayerful as we seek to lead through this. All right. So that's what's going on as a church. Just a note on that, we'll also be sending out a congregational letter via email. Um, It's going out probably right around now um, automatically that gives everyone the scoop on those things that are going on. One last note about that, too. Obviously, you have freedom of conscience to, you know, to make that call, too. Like, if you feel that it's inappropriate for you to come, you, know, you have that freedom. I'm not, I'm not your, the boss of you. But um, all of that said, instead of wrapping up with a story or some clever thing, um, as we said, one of the things we need in this season is prayer. And so what we're going to do is I'm going to invite you to join me. We're going to come before our Lord and pray specifically for the challenges that our world is facing right now. So would you pray with me? Holy and mighty Lord, you're our sovereign God and good King. You wrote in your book, every one of them, the days that were formed for us even before we were born. You turned back the angel of death from the dwellings of your people. You appointed the times and boundaries of nations and reign over those who rule them. Your son was lifted up on the cross that all who are dying might look to him and live. You hold the power of life and death, the power to heal our diseases and redeem our lives from the pit the power to work good in our broken circumstances and give us hope in the valley of the shadow of death. Lord, we come to you in prayer as we face the suffering visited on us by this disease. You are our King and our Father, overflowing in greatness and goodness. Hear these, our prayers. We pray that you would be with our world as we seek to confront this epidemic. Mercifully bless the means, whether medically or in terms of public action, that are used to stay the spread of this sickness. Strengthen those who labor in the work of healing, especially doctors and nurses and other hospital personnel. Give wisdom to our leaders that they might make wise decisions that contribute to the common good. We pray for those who are affected by COVID-19 and by the many other diseases that harry our mortal bodies. Comfort the afflicted. Support those who are in pain and distress. Bring healing to those who are brought low. For those beyond healing, give the comfort of your gracious salvation, our heavenly rest, and the resurrection of the dead. Father, we pray that you would provide for all those facing hardship as a result of this disease, for employees who face lost income 
or lost jobs, for parents struggling to find childcare, for children stuck in unhappy or impoverished homes. We especially pray for the poor and the least of these, remembering your affection for them and the reality that they will be especially hard hit in such a time of crisis. Our prayer is that you would move and also that you would call us to be your ambassadors and agents in this world. Make our hands the hands of Jesus. Use our talents and resources as he used his. Let our words be full of peace and comfort. Our actions embody self-sacrificial love and our thoughts rest on the unshakable hope we have in you. All of this we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, the great physician, the resurrection, and the life. We pray the prayer that he taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation. 